Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Charles Dickens, famous author, wrote a number of books. His most famous book is called The Tale of Two Cities, and it starts out with this line that says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. Did Charles Dickens write this for us in 2023? I mean, like, is this... For us, is this now? I look at this and I go, wow, it's pretty contemporary. This matches kind of what I see in our world today. And yet he wrote this in 1859 about the cities of Paris and London as they headed into the French Revolution. And you look at this and you go, this kind of represents all of humanity, that a lot of our seasons in life look like the best and the worst are happening at the same time, that there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of foolishness, that there's a spring of hope and a winter of despair, that it feels like there's so much potential in our society and it feels like we're on the edge of falling off a cliff. And all of that's sort of occurring at the same time. And I wonder, I wonder if Charles Dickens read Ecclesiastes 3.1. If you have your Bibles, we're in Ecclesiastes 3, and we've been on this journey. I wonder if you have your Bibles, turn them on and open them up. I wonder if he wrote or read, he didn't write them, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 3. I wonder if Charles Dickens read what Solomon wrote. And so we've been on this journey to kind of understand the seasons of life, working our way through all of Ecclesiastes 3. Today we're going to kind of finish that up. And, and Solomon starts off by saying there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heaven. So there's the best of times and the worst of times that are happening all at the same time. That winter and summer and spring and fall, there's a season for everything and every activity under the heavens. And kind of working our way through this as we've done it over the last eight weeks, trying to learn what it looks like for you and me to yield to God in whatever season we find ourselves in. That yielding isn't passivity and it's not defeatism, but it is saying, wait, God, you're infinite and I'm finite. You're outside of time and space and I'm anchored in time and space. You know the beginning from the end and I'm sort of here in this moment trying to understand what's going on and you're sovereign over all things and if I can see myself as finite in God, infinite. I, I can place myself, so to speak, in his hands. And his hands are both loving and just. That everything that God does, without exception, is both loving and just. There's nothing that he does that's only just. There's nothing that he does that's only loving. It's both, always, all the time. And that when I see myself in his loving and just hands, that's when I can experience a level of peace through these seasons for this and for that. And so we've kind of worked our way through this and talked talk about a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a, a time to scatter and a time to gather, a time to speak and a time to be silent, 
Today we're gonna look at this last one, Ecclesiastes 3, 8, which says there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I mean, just look at this for a moment. I mean, you kind of see these words that Solomon is using as pretty natural descriptions of our human experience, that every human that's born experiences love and hate, that all of us have an experience with some war and peace. This is a normal, natural description of our human existence. It also describes the heights and the depths of our human experience. The highest thing in life is to be loved and to love someone else. The lowest thing in life is to hate and to hate, to be experience hate. The highest thing is to experience peace in all levels. The lowest is to experience war and the destruction of all levels. And so this kind of Solomon's way of finishing his statement saying, let me describe to you the highest of highs and describe to you the lowest of lows that everything has a season and a time and a place. But there's a part of me that looks at this and I wonder, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, that is it possible that he's saying this is good? That it's actually not just describing our human experience because it's accurate to our experience, but does this mean that under heaven, love and hate, war and peace are good? I mean, is it possible to do any of this without sin? Meaning, is he saying I can love without sin and I can also hate without sin? I can make war without sin and I can make peace without sin? Is that, is that what he's telling us? And sort of exploring that together is an interesting sort of philosophical, theological question and I would submit to you, it is possible to love and to hate, to go to war and to make peace and do it without sin because I see God doing all of that and he's perfect, loving, and just in all his ways. So today what we're going to do is open up the Bible and look at how God loves and hates, makes war and makes peace and hopes to learn and apply to our lives what this could mean in embracing seasons of all kinds, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we approach your word in a difficult theological and philosophical topic. Would you help us to lean in, to learn, to become like you, to know your heart and to yield to your peace and discover your purpose. May your word do its good work in us, whether here on campus or those people engaging with us online, may we open, be open to your truth and that you might change us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. To understand what Solomon means by there's a time to love and a time to hate, let's ask the question, what does God love? And just sit with that for a second. I mean, think of that question, what does God love? If we open up our Bibles and ask our Bibles the question, Bible, tell me what God loves. I mean, it's pretty extensive, the things that God loves, that he explicitly says, I love this. 
And so I, I wanna just bring up three things that God explicitly loves. We could say a lot more, but three broad things that God loves. God loves the world. I mean, this is so basic, but probably one of the verses that many of us could quote is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. When John writes these things, for God so loved the world, he is specifically talking about people, for God so loved the world of people that he gave his own son, that God loves all people, and all means all, no exception. God loves all people. And we know that he created us in love, that's why he made us, and we know that all of us have rejected him and fallen short of his glory. So the Bible says God loves all people, but all people are sinful, without exception. Ask your neighbor if you're sinful, don't. They're gonna tell you, right? They're gonna tell you, you're sinful. All of us are, without exception. But God just doesn't throw the world away because we're sinful. He loves the world. He sends his son into the world to live and to die and to rise again that we might all be saved, that whoever believes in Jesus would have eternal life. And when Jesus rises again from the dead, he conquers all the things that make this world full of sin and all the consequences of it. He pays for that on the cross so that he can bring about total restoration to all people, right? And so by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we can have new life, everlasting life. He loves all people. But when God says he loves all the world, the word used actually means he also loves the planet. Yes, the center of his love is humanity, but God loves birds and animals, mountains and oceans. God loves this planet that he made. So when God says that God loves the world, we can say that that includes the material aspects of this world. And when Jesus returns, he's gonna make all things right. And so as humans, because of our sin, we've messed up our lives, but we've also messed up this planet. And when Jesus returns, he's going to restore this planet, the material world, to its original beauty and goodness. God loves the planet too. He loves the world and he loves the planet. So when Solomon says there's a time to love, I think it's people and planets. What does God love? God loves justice. Another thing that we could say, it's so clear, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Or Psalm eleven seven says, for the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. God in himself is right and he is the standard of right. He loves justice and he is the plumb line and standard of justice for all humanity. Therefore, he loves the administration of justice, the spreading of justice for all. This is what God loves. A very simple example of this, sort of practically. Have you heard that phrase, you reap what you sow? It's just basic. Like soon it's spring, it's springtime now, and we plant things in the ground. When you plant a tomato plant, do you get bananas? You don't? Why? Because God is just? Because you plant tomatoes and you harvest tomatoes. Because you reap what you sow. This is 
in the Bible from beginning to end. It's rooted in the nature and the character of God and hardwired into our very existence. If I plant love and peace and justice, I reap love and peace and justice. If I plant deception and evil and falsehood and impurity and violence, I get falsehood, impurity, and violence. This is a very simple example of the justice of God hardwired into the universe that he loves justice administered to all. An example is you reap what you sow. But he loves the just treatment of people. There's a time to love justice. What else does God love? I think this is fascinating. One of the strong statements of God's love in the Bible is God loves a cheerful giver. Well, that's cool. Strong statement. Because remember that God so loved the world. Remember that? God loves the world. What did God do because he loved the world? He gave. Can you imagine? God so loved the world that he kept his son Jesus for himself. What a stingy God. No. Our generous God says, I love so much that I give. And it's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 says, each one of us should give what we've decided in our hearts, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Now, my dad was a little more Jersey and a little more raw than me. And he said to me, son, there's only two types of people in this world. You're either gonna be a giver or you're going to be a taker. You're either gonna give or you're going to take. And when I look at God, God is a giver. And his sons and daughters are designed to be givers. He loves a cheerful giver. And so when Solomon says there's a time to love, I think we can look at God and say, well, God loves the world. He loves justice. He loves cheerful givers. We can understand that that is pure and perfect of God to love the world, to love justice, to love generosity. But what does the Bible say God hates? Great question. The easiest place to see what God hates is in Proverbs chapter six. So if you're in your Bibles in Ecclesiastes, turn left to Proverbs six, verses 16 to 19. You know, Solomon wrote, there's a time to love and a time to hate. He also wrote Proverbs six, where he's going to explicitly tell us what God hates hates. He says in Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And then he gives a list. God hates haughty eyes, lofty, puffed up, arrogant, holier than thou, superior. He hates a lying tongue, deception, falsehood, bending the truth, ignoring the truth. He hates hands that shed innocent blood, violence against innocent people. Verse 18, he hates a heart that devises wicked schemes, conniving, manipulating, dishonest, scheming, feet that are quick to rush into evil, impulsivity, lack of self-control, giving in to your feelings. Verse 19, he hates a false witness, who pours out lies, slander, gossip, destroying people's reputation, 
and he hates a person who stirs up conflict in the community, drama, disunity, divisiveness. Solomon describes in a bunch of words the attitudes and actions that God hates, and so you look at all of these things, and he's describing our human behaviors and attitudes specifically against other people, so we might say that God hates sinful selfishness that harms people. He hates when we, who are created in the image of God, designed to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves, when instead of doing that, we love ourselves, and we make sinful choices that harm ourselves and harm the people around us. God hates that. And there's a time, he says, to hate sinful selfishness and the behaviors that harm people. To understand what Solomon means by there's a time for war, we can ask this question, when does God go to war? Are there examples in the Bible of God going to war? And keep turning back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 9. In Deuteronomy 9, we read the account of God describing, he's, he's bringing his children into a new land, and the land he's bringing them into is occupied, right? There's, there's people there. But God says, I want you to go into this war. And fascinating, Deuteronomy 9 verse 1 says, Hear, O Israel, you're now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. These people are strong and tall, he said. You know about them. You've heard it said. Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out, and you will annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised. Verse four is fascinating. He says, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Interesting. God sends his people in, tells them to go, and he's gonna fight for them, and he's gonna give them victory. And when you get there, and when you take possession of the land, you won the war, don't take credit thinking it's because you're so great. You're superior. You're entitled. He says, no, the victory of this war is because of wickedness. The people of this land are wicked, he says. They are sinful and selfish. So whenever you see God go to war, God wars against sin. He wars against the sinful selfishness of humanity. God loves the world, right? He loves justice. And because he hates sinful selfishness, there's times that God goes to war. Jesus' brother in James chapter four, write this down, verse one, he tells us about this. What causes fights, literally wars and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So inside of all of us is this sinful selfishness that wars inside of us, and then we take the war outside of us, and we start doing wicked and evil things. This happens throughout humanity, and God's at war against sin and selfishness in all of us. 
When Solomon says there's a time for peace, we can ask the question, how does God make peace? Because God loves the world. He loves justice. He loves people. So he sends Jesus, right? He doesn't throw the world away because it's made up of simple, selfish people like you and me who make war inside and make war all around us. He doesn't throw it away. He loves the world so much that he wants to make peace. So these famous words that are often read at Christmas are prophetic over now and the future. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So God sends Jesus to be our Prince of Peace. He sees the war inside of me and you, and he sees our collective war and destruction, and he says, I love you too much. So he sends Jesus to secure peace for us now and forever. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so how does God make peace? Instead of throwing us away for our sinful selfishness, Instead of just going, you know what, just destroy the place. He doesn't do that. He sends the Prince of Peace in to make a way through his life, death, and resurrection to enter every human heart and to make us agents of peace in this world. But one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring total peace to every corner of this planet and he's going to right every wrong and fix every injustice and clean up every polluted water stream. He's going to make peace in every way and only in his hands is there peace. So when Solomon says there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, all of these things happen within God and there's no imperfection, no sin, no evil in God. And you see God loving and God hating, God making war and God making peace, and we are told to be like him. That if these things exist in the perfect nature of God, then they can exist in his sons and daughters, not because we're perfect, we're imperfect, but we are his children. We're designed to be imitators of God, to follow his example. So Ecclesiastes 3.8 begs the question, do you love what God loves? Do you love the world? Do you love all the people of the world? Do you all love all the people regardless of what they think or how they act? Do you love the people of the world that you find icky? Do you love the people of the world that you just completely disagree with and you can't believe how stupid they are? Do you love them like God loves them or like you love them or you think you should love them? Do you love like God loves everyone? All people, do you love what God loves? Do you love this planet? Is this planet just here for us to use and abuse and throw it away for our gain? Or do animals and plants and streams and oceans and mountains and trees, do they matter to God? God entrusted them to us to use for his glory, not for our selfish human gains. Do you love this planet? God does, and he's gonna restore it to beauty, do you? 
Do you love justice? God loves justice. Do you want justice for all people? God wants justice for all people. His standard of justice is our standard of justice, and the justice that God promotes is the justice that we must promote. When you see injustice at work or in your neighborhood at school, do you speak up? Do you have courage to both see and speak up for injustice? Do you see that there are systems of injustice in our world that you can speak up and do something about? Do you love justice? God does, and he wants it for all people, all. Justice for all. Are you a cheerful giver or a reluctant giver? Are you someone that would be described as a taker? Everything is about you. It's my gifts, my money, my time, my retirement, my, 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 my. Or are you like your father in heaven who is generous for God so loved the world, Joe so loved the world that he gave. That Melissa and Sylvia and whatever your name is, fill in the blank, that I so loved the world that I was generous and gave. I wasn't stingy and taking. God loves generosity. Do you hate what God hates? Do you? God hates sinful selfishness that harms people. Do you hate your sinful selfishness or do you call it a bad habit? That's just the way I am. Do you hate your sinful selfishness? God does. I mean, 1 Peter 2 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's something going on inside me and you that's waging war against us and we treat it like it's a bad habit or we toy with it. We kind of play with it. We kind of give excuses for it. It's just the way I am. The sin that wars against you is what nailed Jesus to a cross because God went to war against sin and we play with it and we don't hate it. Have you welcomed the Prince of Peace into your life? Because the Prince of Peace sees the war going on inside you and says, I love you despite the war. I've come to give you peace over that and strength over that. Would you invite me in and I will make peace and I will transform you from the inside out. Have you welcomed the Prince of Peace? Because while there's a war stirring up inside you, he can come and give you peace and power over those things and make you love the things God loves and hate the things God hates if you would just welcome the Prince of Peace. Because when you receive this peace, you could be agents of his peace until he comes and makes all things right and just on planet Earth. I want to finish by having you turn to back to Ecclesiastes 3. Come back to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9. So Solomon says, there's a time for this and a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, time for that. He says 14 statements, a time for this, time for that, time for this. All things, and he gets to the end, verse 9, and he says, now what do workers gain from their toil? Time for this, time for that, time for this, all these seasons. What do workers gain? from their toil. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. There's three words that stick out to me, work, toil, burden. Doesn't that explain our human existence? Like in many, many ways, as we go through these seasons, we experience work all the time. Oh gosh, I gotta go to work. 
right? Every type of work is hard. You're sweating. It's difficult. It's stressful. It's pulling you apart. It's burden. You feel the gravity, the weight of work all the time. Why is work and toil and burden so real in our human existence? Because God made us and we rejected him. And the result of our rejection is difficulty in life at every stage of left and right, up and down in every season of life, work and toil and burden. And I love that the Bible is honest about that. It's like, hey, yeah, you know what? Through these ups and downs, lefts and rights, it's gonna be hard. But look at what he says next. He has made everything, this is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He's lifting our eyes to see that in God's goodness, he's going to make everything. Interesting phrase, he says, and he's also set eternity into the human heart. What does that mean? I am finite, but God made me and you with a soul that will never die. And a sense inside each one of us that there's more going on than what we can see or an experience on planet Earth. He set eternity into the human heart. Even though that's true, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Even though this is true, I'm still finite and he's infinite, right? And so I'm never gonna fully understand all that God is doing, and yet I go back to, he's gonna make it beautiful. And then he goes on to say, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift of God, that even as this life is up and down, left and right, even though I'm sweating and it's hard and difficulty happens, even though I'm finite and God is infinite and I have an eternal soul that will never die and I can't fully fathom all that's going on, he's like, Joe, eat, drink, Seize the day. Don't just case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. No, lean in. Find your joy in all of these lefts and rights, ups and downs, seasons that happen. Find your satisfaction. This is a gift from God. And he ends by saying, I know that everything God does will endure forever. What a cool statement. I am confident, Solomon says, and here's a guy who made all kinds of mistakes in his life. I am confident that everything God does will endure, that nothing can be added and nothing to be taken away. God does it, look at this, so that people will fear him. I want you to look at that statement. Why is all of this happening? These lefts and rights, these seasons of ups and downs, time to born, time to die, time to hate, time to love, all these things, all of this is to draw us to him that we might fear him. And fear doesn't mean that we're afraid, oh my gosh, what's God gonna do? He's gonna blast me. No, it's I'm going to yield to the superior one, the infinite one, I yield to you. I fear you, I recognize you are infinite and I'm finite. You see all things and I don't. I trust you even when I make mistakes. I trust you on my good days and my bad days. God does all of these seasons, these lefts and rights, these ups and downs, the best of times, the worst of times, the times of hope, the times of despair, the times of crying and the times of joy, the time of life and the times of death, that you and I might fear him and yield to his purposes because he is good and his love endures forever and he has a purpose for your life and yet we fight him instead of fear him. We fight and resist the Almighty instead of just saying, I will obey you, I will follow you, I will trust you, left and right, up and down. 
in every direction I will follow you. God, please help your sons and daughters because these are hard truths that you have set in and hardwired into our hearts that you're a God of love and a God of justice. You're a God who hates sin and rebellion. That there are wars that take place because of the wickedness of humanity. That you defend the cause of the innocent and you bring about peace. Only in you is their true peace, shalom, forever. You are the Prince of Peace. So if we feel a war going on inside of us today, may we yield to you. Where we have let injustice thrive, may we hate that. Be agents of justice. Where we have not loved, forgive us that we might love. Where we've abused our planet, give us grace to steward our planet. Help us, God that we might fear you and follow you and discover the greatest joy in your hands. You alone are worthy of praise and worthy of obedience, worthy of trust. You promise to make all things beautiful in their time. We can't fathom what that looks like today, but we trust you. So make every pain beautiful. Make every joy beautiful. Make every season beautiful. We trust you to do that. In Christ's name, amen.